You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Wax Tracks Records was the epicenter of the industrial music explosion of the 80s. 33 and a third years later, its legacy lives on. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Kahn of the Chicago Tribune. We talked to Wax Tracks artists Chris Connolly and Paul Barker about the influential label, and later review the latest from Beyonce. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome new listeners to the Sound Opinions family. Yes, Greg, we're thrilled to be heard around Pittsburgh now, courtesy of 90.5 FM Public Radio. When we welcome some new listeners to the Sound Opinions family, we like to play something from their neck of the woods. And I think you have to go to one man when you're talking about music and Pittsburgh, Henry Mancini. He grew up uh, an Italian immigrant, Enrico Nicola Mancini, in Alaguipa, just outside of Pittsburgh. Classically trained musician. And it's impossible to think of a certain era of Hollywood and television without his contributions to the soundtracks. Won an Academy Award for writing Moon River. Wrote a million theme songs from the Pink Panther to, and this is where the rock and roll comes in, the Peter Gunn theme. Long forgotten television detective series, right? I mean, I've never seen it. I've never even seen clips of it, right? But the music is immortal. And... Like one out of three rock and roll bass lines, I swear, throughout the entire history of rock and roll is cribbing something from that bass line in the Peter Gunn theme. We have Henry Mancini to thank for that. We have Pittsburgh to welcome to Sound Opinions. Here, in honor of that, is the Peter Gunn theme by Henry Mancini from 1958. That's Henry Mancini's Peter Gunn theme on Sound Opinions, welcoming our new listeners at 90.5 FM Essential Public Radio in Pittsburgh. Yes, a dirt-cheap sale of a once-major empire in the music world 
MySpace. Remember MySpace 2006, 2007? What was that, Dad? <laughs> yeah, breaking relatively big artists at the time like the Arctic Monkeys and Lily Allen. Well, it has just been sold. Originally sold six years ago for $580 million to News Corporation. News Corp has just turned around and sold it to Specific Media LLC for a mere $35 million. It still has about 35 million unique users, but there's no doubt that the size of MySpace is shrinking drastically. Originally with a staff of about 1,400, now down to about 220 people, Jim. The big news in tandem with this sale is that the one and only Justin Timberlake is involved in the new venture uh, with specific media with the idea that, quote-unquote, rebuild and reinvigorate. Well, good luck with that. I recall a conversation I had just a few months ago with T-Bone Burnett where he was basically looking askance at Twitter and Facebook. He says, you know, in five years, get back to me and see how you're doing. And I think this is a cautionary tale for any of the new social media sites, all all the new music sites. Where are you going to be in five years? Are you going to be eclipsed by some new technology? That certainly was the case with MySpace. Calm down, Greg. I know you love that song, Rihanna's big hit single, (laughs) Man Down, but you don't have to dance every time you hear it. Recent hit for Riri. But this is a money story coming from our public radio colleagues over at the uh, Planet Money team. How much does it cost to make a song a hit? They did the breakdown as best they could estimate for how much it cost to make Man Down a huge single for Rihanna. It started with something called a writing camp. The record label rents a bunch of studios and hires songwriters and producers to come in, spend a couple of weeks writing potential songs for the album, $18,000. Then the actual songwriter who writes the song they choose gets fifteen grand. The producer gets about twenty grand. The vocal producer gets fifteen grand. The mixing and mastering people get ten grand, and then the rollout of the song, the cost of making the song a hit in terms of marketing, flying the artist around to promote it, and the key ingredient, taking commercial radio program directors out to fancy dinners mm. and giving them other incentives to play the song, a million dollars. For this one song to be a hit, a grand total of one million seventy-eight thousand dollars. What's most remarkable about this figure, Jim, is that it's still so high. I did a lot of reporting on this phenomenon in the late 90s, early 2000s, when commercial radio was still a major force. The only major force, really, because MTV had essentially stopped playing videos. So commercial radio was it. And record companies, the big four in particular, were funneling a lot of money to radio stations to break hits. So a million dollars, not unusual in the late 90s. But remember... We're selling 8, 9, 10 million records at a pop back then. A Beyonce-level artist, a Rihanna-level artist would be selling those kind of numbers. Now we're talking about a big hit producing maybe 2, 3 million sales tops. So you're investing a million dollars in one song. Do the math on that. The record companies are not coming out ahead on this deal, and it's remarkable that they're still spending this kind of money for such downward-spiraling sales.
That is Every Day is Halloween from Ministry on Sound Opinions, one of the first singles released by the legendary Wax Tracks label out of Chicago. From the early 80s to the mid-90s, Wax Tracks records defined the cutting edge for a lot of people. The term you hear get thrown around a lot, Jim, about Wax Tracks is this industrial sound that they came up with. And you get a sense of, like, urban decay, this kind of very rough, raw inner city sound that was born in Chicago and spread around the world. And when you think about bands like Nine Inch Nails or the ministry that headlined Lollapalooza in the early 90s or KMFDM out of Germany, these were all bands that were either on the label or inspired by what Wax Tracks did in the early 80s. It started out as a, uh, a record store on Lincoln Avenue in Chicago and from there morphed into a recording studio a record label, a sound all its own. where you and, had, and a way of life. Well, a way of life, absolutely. You know, you had to wear the leather. You had a certain flamboyance that was unusual, let's say, for the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Certainly stood out even in Chicago back then. And then you had these musicians, fabulous musicians, people like Paul Barker, Bill Rieflin, Chris Connolly, who migrated to Chicago to be a part of this label and later formed the core of a informal Wax Tracks house band, a community of misfits that played on a number of different records. So, you know, you could be involved in eight or nine projects at a time if you were on the Wax Tracks label. It all started with the founders, Jim Nash and Danny Flesher, the late founders of Wax Tracks. And on the occasion of Flesher's death, a lot of the people who were involved with the label back in the day decided to throw a retrospective concert celebrating the legacy of Wax Tracks. It was called the 33 and a third anniversary party. It was staged over three nights in Chicago. A lot of the bands got together at that point to reprise their old hits and to uh, basically just say goodbye to an era that uh, really transformed the face of music culture in Chicago and around the world, really. So to help us put the label in context, we're joined by two key players in the Wax Tracks history, Paul Barker and Chris Connolly. Barker played uh, in ministry for a decade-plus, and Chris Connolly was one of the key members of the Revolting Cox, otherwise known as Revco. Welcome to Sound Opinions, guys. Thank you for having us. Yes, Hi. good morning. Thank you. Now, you both came to Wax Trek sort of late in its existence and weren't from the Chicago scene originally. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul, you were out in Seattle, I believe, right? Pacific Northwest? Uh, yeah, well, I grew up in Seattle, and then my affiliation with Wax Trek started with a band I was playing with, Blackouts is the name of the band, and we put out an EP on Wax Tracks. However, at that time, the band had relocated from Seattle to Boston, so we lived in Boston for two years. Mm -hmm. Also at that time, that's when I met Al, and he produced the EP, which was recorded at Synchro Sound Studios, which was the car studios there in, in Boston at the time. It was kind of absurd and extravagant and, you know, a lot of fun, and ultimately we were pretty happy with it. That had to be a trip. You're working with Al Jorgensen, who already is somebody at that point, and you're working at the Cars studio. You must feel like rock stars. No, we were <laughs> way too cynical for that. I mean, come on. And there really wasn't any degree of being starstruck or whatever okay. to, to work with Al. We just met him at a club. Hmm. We opened for the B-52s at the channel or something, and we were covered in 
pig's blood and flour and stuff. And <laughs> he it's said, just I like, like these guys. Yeah, right, exactly. It was, you know, it was one of those things like, okay, well, somehow, you know, we got the opening slot, so we're going to do something to piss everybody off. You yeah. Know what I mean? I mean, I have to comment on just the state of rock and roll. It's just so lame. I mean, there's there's so little antisocial activity from rock music <laughs> these days. It just yeah. it's just horrible. It's just so boring. You Too know? much good behavior. You, you're mentioning sort of this antisocial aspect of it. Was it apparent even then that Wax Tracks was sort of doing something different from the norm? At that point, uh, well, yes, it was primarily mm. because you know the bands that were on the label were obscure and you know whatever fifty percent European, you mm. know. So, mm. right, how did they find the, these bands? I don't know. It's just word of mouth. They were doing an incredible amount of business overseas. Jim Nash was going overseas to find records and then eventually bringing bands over here. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we one of those European bands was Chris Connolly's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, how did that work out with you in getting hooked up with Wastrex? Um, well. If I, I may say something right here, I think a lot of what Jim and Danny discovered was through the store, the Wax Track store, because mm-hmm. they'd be offered these cassette-only compilations by strange distributors, and I think that was a, a big A&R pool for them. But I, it, you know, the way I found Wax Tracks was not dissimilar to the way Paul found Wax Tracks. I was in a band that... Well, we didn't use pig's blood because we were vegan. <laughs> <laughs> but we used dye. <laughs> so, oh, use tar. <laughs> um, I was in a band called the Finney Tribe, and we were playing around uh, Edinburgh, and nobody liked us. We were very much against the, the norm of, of bands, and it was all very kind of a little paisley underground, a, a lot twee. <laughs> uh, and although I liked quite a few of these bands it wasn't us at all we were far more aggressive than that we couldn't find a label and I was working for Rough Trade at the time and a couple of records came through the office one was by the Young Gods and Swiss it, band yes and uh, it was a single called Envoyer and I really liked it and uh, the other was Big Sexy Land by the Revolting Cox. The label had a London office through Southern Studios. It was based at Southern Studios, which was a huge umbrella for the Crass label, all these punk rock labels, and uh, Discord and what have you. And uh, they facilitated wax tracks in the UK. And I sent them a tape and got on a bus and went down there to see if they would sign the Finney Tribe. And uh, it so happened that they had a studio in the offices, in the garage outside. And Paul and Al and Bill were there. Al just asked me, apropos of nothing, really. He just, we just met. Mm-hmm. And he, I said, I really like your records. And he said, oh, do you want to sing a song? You want to sing something? <laughs> so you got Paul Barker, Al Jorgensen, Bill Rieflin yeah. in the same place. And they said, hey, we want to join our band. Basically, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think Al was just looking for an excuse to go out drinking at 11 in the morning. But I said... <laughs> You mean now? And, uh, and he said, yeah, why not? And so we went out and had a couple. And uh, 
went back to the studio and recorded. And I met Paul and I met Bill and, uh, you know, the rest is history. (laughs) The thing that's always kind of funny to me is is I was a young fanzine writer on the East Coast and I'd get these Wax Tracks packages, the promo packages. Mm -hmm. Do you remember these, Greg? Oh, yeah. They came in in, in bright yellow with the nuclear warning sign on them. You know, you were almost (laughs) afraid to open them. And we'd see names like yours, Chris, and Paul, and everybody's in, in these different conglomerations. And you get this image in your head of some satanic cult at night, you know, all, all, all mixing and merging. Right? And it really is more like folk music hootenanny. You want to play on my record? Come on over. Let's all, let's all pick some tunes. <laughs> well, certainly there was a common thread, you yeah. know, with, with all of the artists. And although, you know, perhaps they didn't see eye to eye on everything, it was once again this antisocial kind of, of bent and mm-hmm. trying to do something that you don't hear on the radio all the time. That sort of thing. And another influence, I suppose, is dance, underground, club music, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Well, to extend the metaphor, the gym was started there. Uh, Instead of folk guitars, it was samplers and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, technology, abusing technology. That Mm -hmm. seemed to be like a common theme, too. When people think about the wax track sound, it didn't really have a sound, per se. All the bands sounded very different. But there was that seeming common link of using technology, abusing technology. Was that an attraction, Paul, for you at all, or...? Well, sure it was. I mean, you know, in uh, the Blackouts, we were an organic band. And so we were a post-punk band and really into that aspect of playing the same instrumentation as everyone else and yet having a unique sound. You know, bands like Wire and Public Image and Birthday Party and, you know, stuff like this. Guess what? Nobody sounds the same. It's just so incredible. You don't really hear that anymore today, unfortunately, for for whatever reason. But part of that aspect in doing music like this is its organic element where you can do whatever you want to develop a sound. Well, as soon as you start playing with machines, a lot of that looseness goes away. And so for me, the fascination was to take the kind of rebellious punk rock aspect Mm. and apply that or use machines to to make music. We've got more Wax Tracks coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, and later in the show, it's my turn to pop a coin in the Desert Island Jukebox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. We've been looking back at Wax Tracks Records, which recently celebrated its 33 and a third anniversary. Founders Jim Nash and Danny Flesher opened the record store's doors in Chicago in 1978. And two years later, they started a label that would go on to have international influence. We've got two members of that Wax Tracks label and family here in the studio, musicians Chris Connolly and Paul Barker. Both have played with a number of Wax Tracks acts, including Ministry, Revco, and Pigface. Guys, to me, one of the elements of the Wax Tracks sound that distinguishes it from other indie or alternative music in the 80s was the political edge. This was a counterculture music railing against the conservative Reagan mindset and embracing feminism and the fight for gay rights. Chris, what accounted for that? I think, well, I think that like-minded people are going to find each other, you know, because they have to. When I first came to America, and I I wrote about this at the beginning of my book, but I thought that everybody in America was like that, like, <laughs> you know. Like Jim and Danny? Yeah, I, I are like people like that. They were uh, flamboyant. And uh, I mean, I really didn't see another kind of America for quite some time. And uh, it was a sort of anything goes attitude. And Ronald Reagan was kind of blocked out of the picture Kind of, I suppose, in the way you might look at Andy Warhol's factory, where it's a drop-in center for really creative people. And uh, I thought it was just wonderful. But I don't see them speaking as them as my friends and my mentors as saying something like, let's show them, let's open it. They just probably thought, let's open this great store here, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we love this music. Other people are going to love it. Let's, Let's go for it. When it opened in 1978 in Chicago, that was the one gathering spot, the island of misfit toys. (laughs) Everybody would come to Wax Tracks because here you could be accepted and you could be who you are. Very much true with these bands, too, seeming to find a home like Finney Tribe, where they couldn't find a home anywhere else. Nowhere else. We'll put your record out. Not only will we put your record out, we'll let you make other records with your friends and put those records out, too. Paul, what was that like, all these side projects that would spin off of various Wax Tracks fans? Well, um, sure, it was a lot of fun. It was great to work with a bunch of different people. Al and I worked in the studio quite a bit and uh, generated a fair amount of music and basically kind of what delineated where what project this music would go to would be the lead vocalist primarily. So you had like Lard with uh, Jello Biafra. Mm-hmm. Led into Gold was your thing. Mm-hmm. Revolting Cox, Chris, was doing a lot of the vocals there. That's right. That's essentially how it was split up. There was well, no sense Well, I mean, of- you know, for instance, okay, so Lard specifically, yeah, we wanted to work with Biafra, and so we wrote a bunch of music with Biafra specifically for Lard, and he actually brought some, some tunes. Night, and 
Kale Head also is uh, Ian came to town. Ian Mackay. Ian Mackay came to town. Same deal. Ian was you know in London. Al and I were in the studio. Bill Reifman was there, and you know we're like, hey, we have a song, come in, you know, and mm-hmm. sing on it. And so then. We liked the song a lot, and Ian liked the song, so we invited him to come to Chicago once we got back to Chicago and work on some more tunes. So those songs were specifically Palehead tunes, you know what I mean? So we all worked together and worked up these things. That is a strange idea. It must be inserted here for people who don't know those names. The drummer of REM, (laughs) you know, with Paul and Al from uh, Ministry, working with the founder of hardcore punk in America, Ian Mackay of of Minor Threat, and and, and the inventor of emo with Fugazi. Wow. No, you had this incredible (laughs) diversity. Thousand Homo DJs was uh, Trent Reznor sang a vocal on, on that track. Yeah. So you had everybody coming in. It was almost like a Stax Motown kind of thing where, you know, people were coming to Chicago to record with these guys. There was that sound and aesthetic, whatever, and all these various records shot out from that. But, Paul, could you sort of address that issue? Track Studios was kind of the home base of of the band. Chicago Tracks is the studio. Yeah, it... it, Really had nothing to do with the label directly, aside from the fact that Al and I kind of encamped there. Yeah. So we would just work on tunes. And so we'd have rhythm section songs together. And I, I guess it's true. I mean, I never really realized there would be uh, that sort of analogy, the, you know, mm-hmm. stacks rhythm section or, you know, Motown mm. guys, whatever. But um, now that you mention it, sure, that can be applied here. What was it like, Chris, coming into the studio working in Chicago, you eventually moved your home base here. I did, yes. What were those sessions like? There are a number of stories about how out of control things were. Three, four-day sessions involving lots of toxic substances, small fires being set in the studio, equipment being abused. And obviously you're sitting next to a man here, Paul Barker, who was at the side of the ringleader of all these things, L. Jorgensen. So, you know, my question is, you can't be completely out of your mind and make put out that much music in that short a period of time, can you? I mean, <laughs> how did it no, actually work? I, I mean, you know, there are, of course, these legendary stories, but what was different for me coming into it from my situation in Edinburgh was that the sessions were very open-ended. And originally, when I first started recording with Paul and Al, we could have a couple of different sessions cooking at the same time. There were two rooms at tracks, and I remember specifically in the big room, Al was working on a ministry song, and maybe things had gotten a little out of control, and Paul and I were bored. We went into the other room, and that's where I cut the vocal for Stainless Steel Providers. Because it was a 24-hour ongoing <laughs> session, 
there were opportunities to work on other things. There were other projects going on concurrently. But at the same time, it wasn't... If everyone had been completely bananas, nothing would have happened, you know. So, yes, you're right. There were several level heads around who managed to keep a lid on things. <laughs> Fine chemical balance, right? Not everybody could be the same place, or otherwise you'd be in trouble. No, because, you know, I mean, I think enough water has gone under the bridge when I can say that it wasn't just the band who were out of control. I mean, there were staff members, too, <laughs> who were just, you know, ridiculous. I mean, it may sound fun and crazy, but it was actually, a lot of the time it was either monotonous are very creative, are just completely annoying, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Chris Connolly and Paul Barker, two of the key players at Wax Tracks Records. Chris, I wanted to ask about Wax Tracks as a business. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the aesthetic contribution can't be underestimated, but how were Danny Flesher and Jim Nash as businessmen, as label heads? Well, you know, Jim and Danny, they were incredibly nurturing of what we were doing, and if I went to them with an idea to make a record, they would always say, sure, go ahead. Mm. Not every record on Wax Tracks is good. You know, Jim and Danny were willing to um, throw mud against the wall and see what stuck. Yeah. Uh, overall, they cared about the artists. They yeah. cared about treating the artists well, and that included royalties, you know, statements, even if there's no money, at least a statement, you yeah. know, and possibly with an IOU, that sort of thing. They were extremely generous, and it, it's exactly what Chris said, and very nurturing, and they were willing to take chances, and they wanted to extend the umbrella of creativity to as many people as possible. You know, I'm sure they got burned plenty of times, yeah. you know, but that didn't stop them. Well, that's inspiring. But the label did end up filing for bankruptcy in 92. It was bought by TVT. Jim and Danny retained creative control, but TVT ended up closing the doors in 2001. And one of the issues was that it was a family business. A lot of handshake deals, not a lot of lawyers involved, not a lot of contracts signed. And if a band decided it wanted to walk, it could walk and often did. And, you know, Jim didn't really have a lot to hang his hat on at that point. Mm-hmm. That has everything to do with their spirit, their uh, willingness not only to take chances, but as Chris said, to nurture acts and not worry about that aspect of their business. And there was a very large degree of trust that was granted by them to the artists. So when people would walk away, you know, and just, you know, raise the middle finger, you know, it's like, okay, of course, you're free to do that. Is that really what you want to do? You know, so. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they painted themselves in a corner in that way. However, you know, if you step back and say, okay, that's a bad business move. Yes, it's a bad business move if you're a major label. And that's the way that you think about, okay, this is a product. Well, that isn't how they thought. Yeah. You know, which is really charming and perhaps naive, but that's also how the whole thing developed and why it lasted as long as it did. Mm -hmm. And then subsequently why it collapsed. Why it collapsed. Yeah, eventually. Well, it's interesting, too, this aesthetic that you talk about. When people talk about the abuse of technology, the electronic-based rhythm tracks, you know, as opposed to the more organic uh, sounds of the 70s, Wax Tracks was really pioneering in that way. You saw that sound sort of built to fruition in the late 90s. Remember the big techno Mm -hmm. boom of 97, 98? By then, Wax Tracks was long gone. Mm -hmm. You had the rise of Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor was admittedly a, you know, an Al Jorgensen wannabe at one point, you know, and he followed in his footsteps and capitalized hugely on the sound. 
And then you had these other bands stabbing Westward Gravity Kills that had top ten hits with that sort of wax tracksy like sound. Looking back, the technology can be dated. I mean, the technology is 1988. It is what it, w- it is what it was. How does that music hold up? You know, I like the way Paul plays, and I like the way Bill plays. I like the way we all played on these records. I like the way we approached them. And we, for the most part, I think at that time, back then, we set the bar pretty high mm-hmm. because we were trying to do something radical. And I appreciate that we did that because I'm still proud of them. It's not necessarily what I would listen to now, but if other people want to listen to it and buy it and bolster our royalty checks, I would be very happy. <laughs> how, how about, uh, uh, boys, how about just technically? When I was going to clubs in New York starting to come up, there was this huge garage rock revival. The Flesh Tones had started it, but uh-huh. then bands like the Fuzz right. Tones, you know, and they're on stage and they're playing, you know, Vox teardrop guitars and Farfisa yeah. organs and they've got the shag haircuts. 25 years past the point of the original 60s innovators. Are you now going to get on stage 25 years past your wax tracks recordings? And are, are you fetishizing? You know, this is that original Roland oh. drum machine. You know, <laughs> this is or because or, everything's smaller now. I mean, now you can just walk on stage and do all of the revolting cocks probably with a laptop. We're doing it with our phones, actually. <laughs> <laughs> all that technology can fit in a cell phone now, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Is there the same fondness, yeah. though, for the machines eh, of that era? Not for me. Yeah. I don't I hate tech I mean I don't hate technology I hate having to think about it too much I'm just you know at the time it was a it was a means to an end and b it was something that we could mess with yeah. but I but I yeah. have to say having interviewed these guys back in the day you guys were never precious about your equipment mm-hmm. and I thought those ministry records in the late 80s early 90s were as mind-blowing as public enemy or anything densely sampled I mean there was nothing that sounded like it And I think that was the aesthetic, was that we weren't precious about what we're creating. We are going to push the envelope, and we want to push it further the next time. It's always the next time. It's always no, it's about always getting stepping it further. stones, yeah. Right. Well, you're not nostalgic guys, but I'd like each of you to pick a record from, from that era that has a special place in your heart. Fondness, whatever, or maybe not so special, but, you know, a black hole in your memory <laughs> <laughs> that you just assume. But is there one that sort of stands out for you, Chris, that kind of says wax tracks? Yeah, you know, it's always going to be um, Stainless Steel Providers by mm. The Revolting Cocks. Like I said earlier, I recorded that the vocals for that one night at Tracks with Paul, and it was a track that he'd actually, I think he recorded it in London, and it'd been sitting dormant for a while, and he gave it to me. And that afternoon, before we got to the studio, we went on a motorcycle ride, me and Paul, around Chicago, and it was a new city to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a very hot summer, and we were going through... Uh, the industrial corridor there on Cortland and there was all these like there was a lot of molten metal and we were tearing up Cortland on this (laughs) motorbike and I started thinking about the lyrics stainless steel providers Mm -hmm. and uh, that's still my magic moment my wax tracks magic moment (laughs) 
that leads to the question, that whole notion of industrial mm. that got slapped on the label. It's mm. a word we've avoided throughout this interview. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. How did we manage to go <laughs> 45 minutes without using the word industrial? <laughs> How does that fit with you, Chris, in terms of hearing that term applied to the music that you guys made? Oh, uh, well, you know, there's not an awful lot I can do about it. I mean, you know, growing up in the 70s, industrial music for industrial people was coined by Monty Cazaza, who's a performance artist who gave it to Throbbing Gristle, who played this music that kind of reflected their surroundings. What we were doing was a lot different from that, but we were using very extreme sounds with very mechanical rhythms, to put it in primitive terms, I suppose. The word industrial got attached to it, and I don't know how. I never saw it as industrial, but I don't particularly mind that because it's there. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it was just really aggressive music that was uh, maybe took a lead from the attitude of punk rock, but was done with a lot of machines. Paul, what about you? What record do you take away from that era that holds a special place for you? Well, actually, one of my favorite records from that era is the first Thrillco Cult record. Mm-hmm. I think that record super cool. Sounds really awesome. As far as my involvement, a record that I think mm-hmm. is really kind of encapsulates how fun it was to work at tracks and, you know, to work with people, I would say that it was the recording of No Bunny, which is a Palehead song. remember distinctly that, let's see, we were going to work with this guy, Eric Spicer. I'd never worked with him before, and uh, Ian MacKay, who mm-hmm. does a guy, right, he was coming in the, the next day, and so that night, I was staying, I think it was staying at Al's house, and I had a bass, you know, and I'm like playing my bass, and I came up with a bass line, and I'm thinking, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go in and see if we can make this into a song, and so I got together, like, we when we went in the studio the next day, and got together with Eric, and we hammered out that rhythm part, and it sounded pretty awesome and then Ian came up with a guitar part and then Al laid down another guitar part and then you know Ian whipped out the vocals and it was just it was really fun it was kind of an anomaly because we went in and recorded it basically in a 24-hour period Uh so we didn't have a lot of time to allow it to mature so to speak it just fell together really well and it was just a really great experience
We've been talking to Paul Barker and Chris Connolly about Wax Tracks Records. Paul and Chris, thanks so much for coming on Sound Opinions. Thanks, thanks for Jim. having us. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Greg. Next one, n- next one is... Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, pop diva Beyonce is back with a new album debuting at number one in the country. But first, we want to remind you that we want to hear from you. Be a rock critic and share your sound opinions on the air. Call 888-859-1800. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is the one and only Beyonce with the first single from her new album, her fourth, aptly titled Four, Run the World, parentheses, Girls. The woman born Beyonce Knowles, raised in Houston, made her debut in the 90s as the center vocalist in Destiny's Child, struck out on a solo career in 2001. Destiny's Child was successful. Beyonce is mega successful. She is on the short list of the reigning pop divas in the universe today. I mean, she's invited to the White House, Mm -hmm. and then she's hanging out with Jay-Z. Everybody in Hollywood wants to be seen with that super couple. What is she doing on album number four? There were some really interesting stories trickling out about Beyonce deciding, having sold some 90 million albums to date, that she could do whatever she wanted on four. She started recording and she wouldn't stop. There were something like 72 tracks to choose from. And there were rumors of some really interesting collaborations like MIA producers Diplo, the Brooklyn noise pop band Sleigh Bells. And at one point, she kept dropping the name Fela Kuti, saying that that was going to be a big influence. Now the album's out. None of those odd choice producers that I mentioned are part of it. A lot of people that she's worked with before, like Rodney Jerkins and Tricky Stewart. What is she giving us on this record? We'll get into our review shortly. First, here is the song Best Thing I Never Had from Beyonce's Four on Sound Opinions.
Scott's Best Thing I Never Had from Beyonce. The album is called Four. Jim, I think that's a great example of the strength of this record. If there is a strength, I think it is in Beyonce's ballad singing. The first half of the album is heavy on those ballads and mid-tempo tracks. Maybe she's channeling a little bit of Etta James. She played her in that 2008 movie Cadillac Records and never felt that she was all that convincing. As a singer, great voice, but not convincing me that she really meant it. On some of these tracks here, I'm starting to feel Beyonce with a little bit of soul, dare I say. Unfortunately, most of this record is just kind of a hodgepodge of bad choices. There are some fine tracks, but buried among all this muck. You've got a Diane Warren track on here. You've got 70-plus tracks to choose from, and you come up with a Diane Warren track called I Was Here, in which she says, I've lived, I've loved, I did, I've done. I mean, it's just toxic. As I said, there's a couple of moments here that I think are worth burning, but overall, I think this album is a disappointment. I'm going to give it a trash it. Uh, I got to go with you, Greg. I got to give it a trash it, too. You were throwing me for a minute there by saying you liked the ballads. I hated the ballads. You know, I got my hopes up when I heard Run the World Girls. Nice little piece of, Mm -hmm. you know, self-empowerment. But she's all over the map here. And when there was so much promise of her experimenting and getting out of her comfort zone and maybe doing some very interesting things to come back with this album, which really is the epitome of factory-made pop products circa 2011. You know, you can't say that that it's not perfect, and that's its problem, (laughs) that it's so perfect, you can't really hear it and enjoy it. You know, there's no there there. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about, Soul. I don't get any sense of a living human being. This is like the Terminator robot made this album. Trash it record from both of us. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Whenever we are able to slip away, we like to run to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a song we can't live without. Mr. Cott, it is your turn. What do you got for us? Jim, thanks. I am here to resurrect the New York Dolls, one of my favorite bands of all time. And by that I mean the New York Dolls that we know and love from the early 70s. Not the most recent incarnation that has actually come back and made more studio albums than the original band did in its very brief life. It's been sad. It has been sad. But that group from 71 through about 75 was amazing. The debut record, In Too Much, Too Soon, Really aptly titled. Nobody knew what to make of these guys back then. There were reviews coming out at the time describing the guitars as sounding like lawnmowers, and that was a negative thing at the time. I think that's a great thing. Johnny Thunder's guitar, it may have sounded like a lawnmower, but my God, it was going to run you over. That's what made this band great. Johnny Thunder's guitars, Sil Sylvain's rhythm guitar, piano playing, and pop smarts. David Johansson as one of the... uh, ultimate vocalist of that era. People sort of described them as a glam group at the time. They're trying to imitate Bowie or Bolin from England. I really think they were the first punk band. That whole CBGB scene would not have existed had it not been for the Dolls. And ditto for the Sex Pistols. Malcolm McLaren came over to New York, checked out the Dolls, and formed the Sex Pistols in their image. So basically, these are the godfathers of punk rock. The summer of 73, there was nothing that sounded like In Too Much Too Soon. But you listen to this track now, Personality Crisis, and you think, my God, what a great 
pop song. Talk about personality. David Johansson is saying, you want personality? I'll give you some personality. <laughs> this song's all about pushing it in your face, emphasizing that New York accent. It's a crisis, all right. I've got a personality crisis. I want more. The virtue of being unpredictable, volatile, impossible. That's how the band was reviewed. That's what it embraced, and that's what it loved. Taking Chuck Berry, revving it up, setting the template for punk rock. It's the New York Dolls with personality crisis on Sound Opinions. Immortal personality crisis. Greg, wonderful choice for the Desert Island Jukebox. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is brought to you by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? We're both very excited about this upcoming performance and interview, Jim. We have Merrill Garbus and Tune Yards at Sound Opinions. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with the assistance of Annie Minoff. Our intern is Kobe Ashpiss. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, is kind of our very own palehead. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey guys, this is John from beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina. I just got done listening to your review of uh, the Bonavera record, and I just have to say thank you 
so much for that. So many people I like and admire and respect. I just gaga for that guy, but something about him, man, I just can't get into it. it makes me want to, to break things, set things on fire. But you guys, especially the trash it twice thing at the end, Jim, that was nice. Anyway, thanks a lot. Keep up the great work. Hi, this is Todd from outside Chicago. Thought you're asking for uh, top five of 2011 so far. I don't know that I have a top five, but certainly in my top five are uh, the new Raphael Sadiq, Stone Roland, and also uh, KD Lang, Sing It Loud. The Katie Lang, I think, is just her best record in years. Lovers are the tasted sweet like cherries in the summer heat. A love so sweet. You're the one that I adored, yeah, you and I moving forward. And uh, there's also a band out of California called Yep put out a record called Once. It's Mark Caputo from Belleville and Al Chan from the Rubios. The record mostly covers, uh, and they just find really, really great takes on those. So those are the three that I got. Thanks a lot. Great show. And I think it's going to be a long, long time touchdown brings me round again to find I'm not the man that think I am at home. I'm a rocket man, rocket man, burning out his fuse up here alone. Hey, my name is Amy. I live in Pittsburgh. I'm calling in because I recently realized how important it is to feel and experience anger that comes into my world and stand up for myself. Uh, I thought that your description of Le Butcherette's like really fortified my commitment to say how it is in the situation. All right. Have a good night, guys. Later. Two weeks later. Hi, how you doing? This is John from Chicago calling about your Desert Island jukebox pick of She's Not There by the Zombies. You guys were talking about creepiness. Well, it's very creepy because, in my opinion, the writer went a little bit Albert Hitchcock <laughs> without actually, you know, saying it. No, she's not there because she's not here no more. <laughs> Period. End of story. You know, the character definitely, I believe, fell in love big time and when uh, he was deceived by her, by her you know, he, he snapped. It's kind of the end of her. So don't bother trying to find her. She's not there. Anyhow, that's my take on it, and I'm sticking to it. Always enjoy listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she had tanned, the color of her hair. Her voice was soft and cool, her eyes were clear and bright, but she's not there. No more messages. 
To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.